Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with you as we gather now around the sacred word. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your own Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. Mark 16, verse 6. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The reading of the sacred word, it is reliable and it can be trusted. Will you pray with me? God, into this time of study and reflection and confession and transformation, we all come with eager expectation because we believe that there is something that can happen in any of us that can only happen because of you. So as we open our minds and our hearts before you, our humble prayer is that you would do it again. That you would renew us from the inside out. That you would draw us into deeper faith in you for the facing of these days. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. So this series in which we find ourselves, How to Be Human, we have been in this ongoing study because it's important from time to time to rehearse, to remind ourselves what it was that God was up to when God thought this whole thing was a good idea, when God created you just as God has created every mortal from the first mortal until you. God thought it was a good idea. And we gather here every week in one way or another to marvel at the same kind of mystery that we hear the psalmist marveling over when the psalmist in Psalm 8 says things like, what are human beings that you're mindful of them, mortals that you even care for them, and yet you have made them a little lower than God and have crowned them with glory and with honor. 
And we marvel a bit when we get together to consider the reality that we are created in the image of God and also in the likeness of God with the, the capacity to live in the world as if we are created in the image of God with a kind of divine royal responsibility to take care of this place, to take care of the earth and all that is in it, including one another. But the reality is, although we are created in that kind of divine image, with that kind of divine mandate, we don't always do it, do we? That means that times we have to remind ourselves why we are in need of rescue, why we are in need of a Savior. So in Jesus, the Christ of God, came to show us the way. This one whom we call the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is fitting of every title that we can imagine, the Son of God, the Most High, the Rose of Sharon, the bright morning star. Yeah, this one, of all the titles that he could embrace, chose one to favor Son of Man, the Son of Humankind, the representation of all humanity, or as, as I prefer, the truly human one. He said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, to have life lived to the fullest. And he came to show us what that life looked like. And Irenaeus of the second century said, when we do live up to and into that highest identity in Christ, well, God delights. And he said that the glory of God is to see a human being fully alive. So this series is about looking into what it might mean for you and I to live up to and into that calling in Christ. So we're capable of some many great things. We're watching some of these things on the Olympics these days. I'm not watching it nearly as with much enthusiasm as I do the Summer Olympics, but you still see feats that, are, that defy gravity and logic and my capacity for sure. But with the thrill of victory also goes what? The agony of defeat. So as capable and divinely charged as we are made to be, we can also blow it. We can fail. And today, I want to talk for just a few moments about the one thing that we all have in common. You live long enough, and eventually we all have this common experience in the human story, failure. Like when I was in college and I failed big time. I called this girl up one time. Her name was Christine. I invited her on a date. I was going to have a party for my roommate, my Korean roommate. It was his one-year anniversary for living in America, and we're going to throw a celebration at my apartment. And I invite this girl. I thought she was interesting. I thought she was not hard to look at, smart. So I asked her to go with me. So what I did not know at that moment when I asked Christine on the date and I could not have known between the time that I asked her to go and the time the party actually took place, I, I could not know that between that moment of the ask and the party itself, I met Laura Beeler. And I couldn't see straight. I could barely breathe when she walked in the room. 
And so the party came, and Laura and I had gone out in between that time, and, and the, the trajectory of my existence changed. And we're at the party, and the apartment is filled with people. All kinds of friends are there, including Laura. And I forgot to go get Christine. About an hour into the party, my phone rang. I answered the phone, hello, and it's Christine. And she says, hey, it's Christine. I said, hey, you, you ready? And I went to pick her up an hour late. It was a cold, cold night in more ways than one. She went home with another ride. Sometimes we just blow it. Like, well, like the time I went to a church for the very first time and we met the entire youth group because they were doing a production, a musical on the stage and it was great and afterwards I was supposed to meet the families and, and, and this one woman comes up to me, her name is Wynne Roos and she says, hey, I'm Wynne, uh, John is my son. John's the one who played the thing on the stage during the whatever and I said, oh, John, yeah, John, he did great. At this point, you need to understand that Wynne Roos is wearing this dress that has an empire waist which, guys, means elastic is right here, and it kind of flows out from there. So I said, oh, John did great. That was fantastic. Is John expecting a little brother or a little sister? Help me, Monty. And she said, neither. And then I just don't know how to stop. You know, the first rule of digging yourself out of a hole is to put down the shovel. I said, is she going to have a little brother, little sister? And, and, and she said, neither. And I said, oh, you don't know the gender of your baby? She said, I do know that I am not pregnant. And then I went to straight up lying. I was like, oh, because see what had happened was there was this, somebody told me that John was, and I was done. Sometimes we just blow it. We fail. But what I want to talk about in this sacred space that we share for a moment or two are not failures like that because as time passes, you can tell stories like that and with a little bit of a grin, you celebrate having come through it. I'm talking all of us have those kind of failures, but from time to time, we fail in a way that you don't want to tell the story. Sometimes we can fail in such a way, so boldly fall flat on our face that something breaks inside. You ever failed so, so bad that the timeline of your life is forever marked by that watershed moment and you remember now the life you had before the fail and the life that you had after the fail? Today I want to talk about epic fail and why completely blowing it may not be the worst thing ever because I suspect there's somebody who is listening today who either is in the midst of a fall or has fallen and completely failed and you wonder if your life is over now what we could do is I could 
come up here and give you every cliche on the topic. I could reach into every cliche from the world of self-help in any direction, and I can say to you, hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and I could fill you with all kinds of bumper stickers that you could take home, put them on your car, and make it through your failure. I could give you the quotes that you can Google, and in about five seconds, you can hear and be inspired by people like Winston Churchill. He said that success is not final. Failure is not fatal, and it's the courage to continue that counts, and that's very true. And maybe today you came and what you need to hear is keep moving. It's the courage to continue that counts, and maybe that's true. Or maybe I could inspire you with the words of someone like uh, Thomas Edison, who after he failed so many times at creating the light bulb, he famously said, I have not failed, I have succeeded at finding 10,000 ways they don't work. And, and we could, we could, we could just redefine failure, reframe it so it doesn't feel so bad. Or we could take a, a deep breath and jump into the sea of wisdom found in this book and allow the Scripture, the Word of God, to say something to us about our failure that is really kind of a singularly unique message about what to think of your failure. Because in this book, there are episodes at every turn. I mean, the Bible is crammed with example after example of persons and peoples and families and tribes and nations who fail and make it through. But if you Take all of those episodes together and step back and look at the full sweep of what Scripture says about failure. You begin to see that there's a bit of a pattern. And the pattern looks a little bit like this. We, we start out trying to create a life for ourselves. And we, and we want that life to be full We want that life to be abundant. And so we do all the things that we are told to do. We we get the education. We land just the right job. We seek out the right person to commit a life to. And you, you share a couple of children and you build, you construct what seems to be a life of wholeness and goodness and joy. But 100% of the time, without exception, in our pursuit of the thing that we think is worth the chase, something happens and we fail at something somewhere and there is a, a crack in the system. There is a, a breaking of the ego. There is something in which we trip and fall on what Isaiah calls the necessary stumbling stone. And then this pattern looks like this. We've constructed this life. Something has fallen apart. And now, unlike before, we are postured in a state of humility that allows us in the midst of our brokenness and embarrassment and shame of it all, we are now open enough to see life with new eyes, to look at my own life through new eyes, to see the possibility that fullness is found in something deeper and more everlasting than anything I can create. What I think the Bible says to us about failure 
is that failure is necessary in order to be truly human. Failure is necessary in order to become truly human. And why? Because until we fail, we will construct a life upon the illusion that we are ultimately in control. Until something falls apart and we fall flat on our face and we embarrassingly fail, we will live our life in pursuit of this perfection that is an illusion. And in this pursuit of this perfect life, the greatest illusion is that we are ultimately in control. And here is a newsflash. We're not. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a way to speak to somebody who is struggling today mightily with with failure in such a way that you see your failure not simply as this albatross around your neck, but what if failure comes as a gift? Doesn't feel like a gift at the time. But if failure is the only thing that can put us in a posture of humility so that we might learn to drink from the everlasting fountain than from the empty and leaky cisterns that we make with our own hands, is it possible that failure is a gift? In the Middle Ages, there was a mystic whose name was Juliana of Norwich or Julian of Norwich. You know what she said? She says, first comes the fall. Then there is the recovery from the fall, and both are the mercy of God. What if the fall, the failure, the thing that we try so hard to hide from one another and even from ourselves, what if the failure itself and the recovery from the failure are both the mercy of God? Now, if we wanted to, I could take this Bible, flip it through, and you tell me where to stop, and I could find any character in Scripture to demonstrate what it looks like to have constructed a life, to have fallen apart, and then to be redeemed by the God who gives us real life. I could, I could start with the failures of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of Jacob's sons. We could talk about Moses and his failures and how he recovered from his failure. We could talk about David. And we could, we could even issue a roll call of all the disciples who failed Christ and abandoned him at his hour of need. And among all of those, I don't know that there is a, a more beautiful expression than the story of Simon Peter's life. In the life of Simon Peter, you and I have all these episodes that we read about in the Gospels that are put together, and if we were to thread them together in kind of a narrative, we could see that his life became built in a way that our life is also built. We shore it up with confidence, boldness, courage, dreaming, and then there was this magnificent fall of failure, of epic proportions, and then his recovery of the fall is our invitation to life. Could you just indulge me for a minute? Let's walk for a moment with Simon Peter. So he's there at the sea line, the shoreline, and he's mending his nets. He's cleaning them after having worked, and Jesus comes up to him. May I borrow your boat? And he looks, 
And he sees this throng of people, these, this multitude of followers pressing in so much that he had to get into the boat, push out just a few yards into the sea, and he's listening to him, and he's watching them listen to him, and they're hanging on every word, and he's paying attention. And depending on what account you read in the Gospels afterwards, he takes them out fishing, and they come back with this magnificent catch, and Jesus comes to Peter and says, if you follow me, I'll make you fish for people. And in that moment, something something gets picked up in the mind of Peter. He begins to realize, I have something that he wants. I have something to offer I can be a part of something bigger than me. And this is what we do with our kids, isn't it? They grow up and we say, you know, little Johnny's really good with a baseball. Maybe he needs like private pitching lessons because he's really good. He may go somewhere with it. Sarah is so good. She is a voracious reader. She read 12 books over the summer. You might want to be a teacher. Or, or Philip, he's about to graduate, you know, with honors. He's got like a nine-point GPA, 107 AP credits. They're going to pay him to go to college, you know. And we, we listen to these messages, and the message is, you've got something to offer. And you can build a life on that, you know. And so you do what is required. You begin to construct a life around you that maybe you can contribute something to this existence and Peter follows him. And he goes everywhere that Jesus goes. He spends every day with him, every night with him. They camp together, eat together, play together, laugh together, and work together. And he sees Jesus, and not only sees Jesus, but he experiences Jesus bringing sight to blind people. He sees Jesus healing someone who cannot walk. He finds his legs and walks He watches Jesus and participates in this exhilarating mission of bringing people who are on the outside, on the margins of society, because of whatever reason, the way they look, the way they talk, where they're from, who their mom and dad was, what disease they have, what choices they've made. And he brings those who are on the edge into the very center of the consciousness of the power circles of his day. And Peter's like, man, I'm a part of something here. And we can go places. We can do things with this kind of mission. And so one day they're on the sea. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if if that's you, bid that I would come to thee on the sea. And Jesus says, well, Shimon, which is Greek for you know, come hither to me. That was really a lot funnier in my head. You know, Shimon, Shimon. Jesus said, come on, come on. And he did. He steps out of the water and he walks on the water. And you know the story. He notices the wind. He begins to sink. And Jesus immediately rescues him from the water, pulls him up. And he famously says to him, oh, you of little faith, Why did you doubt? And we back up from that story and we typically interpret that moment as a failure on the part of Peter, but it's not because I hear Jesus put an emphasis on a different syllable. Jesus doesn't scold him for not having faith. Oh, you who showed a little faith. Thomas didn't get out of the boat and show any faith. 
Philip stayed in where it was saved, didn't show a little faith. John, James, didn't get out and show a little faith. Never underestimate the power of what can be possible when you just show a, a little faith. Imagine the message that Peter picks up. I imagine he gets back in the boat, and they're on their way, and though he is drying off in the boat, he's got a smirk on his face and in his soul because look what I just did. Look what I can do. And as we build this life of confidence and boldness and security, well, we know that we have some things to offer and we have some things that we can do. And so that we fast forward and they're at the Mount of Transfiguration. And not all of the disciples get to see Jesus lifted up and transfigured, prepared for his mission. There's Moses and there's Elijah with him. And only three of the disciples see it happen. And Peter is one of them. And Peter is so excited about what's happening that he says something that you typically say before you've ever failed at something. He says something that you typically say when you're still stuck in the first half of life, attempting to build this life of perfection under the illusion that you're under control. He says, this is great. Why don't we just build three tabernacles right here and we'll set up the kingdom. It's going to be awesome. And Peter demonstrates where he is in the journey of failure. Jesus says, well, now is not the time we have work to do. And fast forward, they're walking along the road, and Jesus talking to his friends says, who do people say that I am? And, and then the, the friends chime in. They, they, they say, well, some say that you're Elijah, or others say you're one of the prophets, or maybe even John the Baptist coming back from the dead. Then he said, but who do you who are closest to me say that I am? dead silent. Not one person spoke up except Peter, the confident one, the bold one. He says, I know, and without a moment's delay, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter or Simon, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this. Imagine the message being picked up by Peter. I'm connected to some important people. I know some things. See, if you back up and look at the episodes that construct the confidence of his life, well, the message of the boat was, I've got, a, I've got something to offer this world. The message of walking on the sea is, I can do some things in this world. The message of the Mount of Transfiguration is, I'm on the inner circle. Not everybody is as connected as I am. The message of his Petrine confession, thou art the cross, the Christ, the message is I know some things. And if you live a life with confidence that, well, I have something to offer, and I can do some things, and I'm on the inside circle, and I, and, and I know some things, well, then it's only mountains for you, isn't it? And we watch him, and it's from one mountaintop to the next to the next until... It's the night that Jesus is arrested and Jesus says to his friends, I'm going away and where I'm going you cannot come. The Son of Man must be lifted up now. And Peter said, nope. These others may scatter. They may flee. Strike the shepherd and the sheep may, may scatter, but not me. I will go with you all the way to the end. And Jesus says this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will have denied me three times. He said, not going to happen, Jesus. They come to arrest him. 
And just like someone who is stuck living in the first half of life before the failure, before ever falling on the necessary stumbling stone of Isaiah, he pulls out his sword as if you can defend yourself from what's coming. And he strikes off the ear of the servant and Jesus heals it and he watches as the other disciples watch. And Jesus is taken away and from a distance he is beaten flogged, swollen, bleeding, sweating, out of breath, hair torn from his face and head, and suffering there in front of him. Peter warms himself over a charcoal fire, and he can't believe what has happened. This whole thing was supposed to go someplace, right? He's warming himself, and a girl says, I recognize you. You're Galilean. Aren't you one of... One of them, aren't you his follower? And in that moment, my heart breaks for him. We typically think that he denied Jesus because he's trying to avoid some kind of penalty. He wants to play it safe, and maybe that's the case, but I don't think so. I see him warming himself, and he looks, and is so disappointed It's rare that we ever connect our failures to our disappointments. When you think about a failure in your life, is it possible that somehow it has a relationship to a great disappointment? He's looking at Jesus. He's warming himself. I gave you everything that you asked me to give you. I gave you my boat. I quit my job. I walked away from my family because you said that you said that the kingdom was coming and it was already here and that we would be a part of leading people into a new way of living in this world and you 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 proved that you knew what you were talking about everyone believed you I believed you and look at you what a disappointment I don't even I don't even want to know you because in his eyes, Jesus looked like a big failure. I risked my life for you. I gave everything up for you. And this is how you go out. And looking upon the cross later that next day, they see a demonstration of what seems to be epic failure. But he didn't know. See, he didn't deny Jesus because Peter had a lack of faith. He denied Jesus because he had so much faith that he knew where this thing was going to go. He had great faith in how this story was supposed to end. And you and I fail not because we don't have faith, we fail because we put too much faith in our version of the story. We know how this thing is supposed to end, how it should have ended, how it could have ended, and we fail not because we lack faith, but because we have faith in the wrong thing. He, he didn't know. He didn't know that it was just Friday. He didn't know what would happen on Sunday morning. He didn't know. 
Because most of the time, God's greatest victories come disguised as failures. Most of the time, God's most beautiful moments come camouflaged in weakness, in vulnerability, failure. He didn't know that Sunday morning God would raise him up to new life. So the stories of the resurrection are scattershot all over the Gospels, and they are told in different ways because that's how resurrection works. That's how resurrection happens. So in one place, I read the most despairing story in John's Gospel. Even after Jesus had appeared to some disciples, Peter makes a decision to walk away from it and go fishing. He said, I'm going fishing. The others get on the boat to go fishing with him. And I don't, I don't know why, but sometimes when we fail, we just need something that seems familiar. And maybe he just needed, again, to feel the texture of the, of the nets in his hands, or maybe as he would just lie there in the boat on his back to hear the creaking of the planks in the hole beneath him. Or maybe he just needed the smell of salt in the air as he looked into a star-spangled sky and repeated a thousand times over what he did wrong, how he failed, what he could have done, what he should have done. Meanwhile, as he's despairing, giving up in a boat over in Mark's gospel, there's the most glorious story that's told the resurrection takes place. The women go to the tomb, and there's a man inside the tomb and dressed in white, and he says, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. And in the text that we read a little while ago, I don't know if you noticed it when we read it, but did you notice in verse 9? But go tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples this new and Peter. I thought Peter was a disciple. Yet Mark, and Mark is the quickest, the shortest. Mark is the one who doesn't flower up his gospel with fluff, with extra stuff, extra material. He gets right down to it. But why would he take the time to say, go tell the disciples and Peter? He didn't call Philip out by name. He didn't say, go tell the disciples and James and John. He said, go and tell the disciples and Peter because he knew that Peter would need a little extra love. Sometimes it's hard to face your own failure. He wanted to make sure that when you go announce this news, make sure they're all together, but I want you to make sure that Peter is looking you in the face and hears every word that you say that he is alive. Meanwhile, Back in John's gospel, he's rocking in the boat and he hears a familiar voice coming out from the shore. Have you caught any fish? John says, it's the Lord, tells Peter, it's the Lord. And then the most remarkable thing happened. He gets dressed because the text says he was naked. Sometimes failure makes you strip off your old identity Sometimes failure makes you believe that you are no longer one of them. 
Sometimes failure makes you believe, I don't belong in this family anymore. I don't deserve this marriage anymore. I don't deserve these kids anymore. I can't belong in this church anymore because of what I've done. Sometimes we strip off our identity and he gets dressed. And the text says that he jumps in the water and swims, but the rest come to the shore by boat. And most of the time we interpret that story, we think about, you know, like Forrest Gump, something's wrong with Forrest's mother. He's in the boat, like this clip here. And he's like, well, there's no time to dock this thing. Let's just see which way, okay? And we jump in. And we swim on to mama, right? And that may be what he did in his enthusiasm, jump out and swim to Jesus, but I don't know. Because failure makes you do some funny things. It didn't say what side of the boat he jumped off of. Sometimes failure makes you want to jump behind the boat. Because if I can just hold my breath long enough, if I can just tread water, doggy paddle for just long enough, maybe he'll never see me. Maybe I won't have to address the thing that fell apart. But he does. He comes to the shore and Jesus is there. And he has set a fire, a charcoal fire with, with fish. And you know the story. He asks him, do you love me more than these, Peter? He says, yes, I do, Lord. Well, then feed my sheep. Three times. And you know the story. He uses different words. Do you really intensely love me? I mean, unconditionally love me and I find it striking that he asked him three times in the same way that he denied him three times that in our failure God will go to no end to help undo each and every one of our sins to undo each and every one of our failures and strikingly it happens over what the text says is a charcoal fire there's only one other place in the new testament just one where that phrase in greek is used charcoal fire it's where Peter was warming himself over a charcoal fire because when we fail, God meets us in the place of our failure to restore us to new life. Yeah, yeah. See, there is the fall. Then there is the recovery of the fall. And, and both are the mercies of God. So he has this conversation with Peter because, Peter, I'm going to need you. You are going to preach the Pentecost message that will rock the world, and upon you I will build my church. He goes on to lead the church, becomes the first bishop of Rome, which today we call the Pope. And if you go there to St. Peter's Basilica and look up at that glorious dome across or above the, 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 uh, the canopy where he is, he is buried, you see in six-foot letters, in gold letters, you are Petras, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You see, just as with Peter, when you and I have our necessary failure, it's in that place that we are most perfectly poised for God to raise up something to new life. There is the fall. Then there is the recovery of the fall. And both are the mercy of God. <laughs>